0: If you could keep your Bibles open, at 2 Samuel chapter 5 would be really helpful uh, to me. But just before we do come to God's word, let's just pray again for a moment and ask God to, to speak to us. Father, as we, as we turn out to your word, uh, I pray that you would speak directly into each of our lives. Give us attentive minds and receptive hearts. Inspire us by the sovereignty of your purposes and by the examples of your servants, human as they are. That we meet in Scripture. We thank you that you are the one and only living God who can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or even think, who can change us, who can use us, if only we are willing to let Him. Teach us by your Holy Spirit, and these things we ask for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Now, if I were to ask you, if I were to ask you to pick out four or five highlights out of your life to date. I wonder what you would include. Quite likely your list might include a, an individual or a mentor who has had a strong influence on in your life. Perhaps a key moment the day you graduated or the, the day that you got married and hopefully the day that you, you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior. A memorable place you visited, perhaps on holiday indelibly etched on in your memory. One of your key achievements in work or, or in sport and if you are brutally honest, you might admit to a defining struggle in your life, such as a, a period of unemployment, a battle with addiction, or a sudden illness. Now, superficially, 2 Samuel chapter five presents us with just such a series of, of snapshots or, or vignettes, if you want, in the life of David. There's a key event, his enthronement, a, a, a place, the royal city of Jerusalem, reputable achievements, details of his family expansion uh, and growing recognition, and concluding then with two memorable battles against the Philistines. But I'd like to show you tonight that on closer inspection, this chapter reveals that the principal character is God and the working out of his purposes. And just as your recollection of the events which I asked you to do so a few moments ago may not have been in any particular chronological order, Neither do the events in this chapter bear necessarily a strict chronological order. They're orderly, but they're not sequential. It's really a collection of highlights intending to give us a proper view of the establishment of David's kingdom. Hiram's reign, for example, that only overlapped with about the last ten years of David's life, so the building of the palace most likely would have been late in David's reign. The report of the the concubines, the wives, the births, which we read about in verses 13 to 16, that obviously summarizes some years in the whole of David's reign in Jerusalem. And then the defeat of the Philistines in verses 17 to 25, that pulls us back immediately to the earlier chapters in David's uh, anointing and almost certainly also took place before the conquest and capture of Jerusalem in verses 6 to 8. Nevertheless, this chapter, it's pivotal in the books of Samuel because the moment of full accession of David to the throne that had been anticipated for so long, in fact, since 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, that I gather you may have covered several weeks ago, that moment has finally come. It's taken 20 chapters, and sometimes David, in his own words, doubted that they would ever happen. But despite all the schemings, all the betrayals, all the violence, all the gore, there I say it, described in the first four chapters of 2 Samuel, what is truly remarkable is David's refusal to grasp the crown. He showed continuing deference to Saul's household throughout. David, you see, entrusts himself to God. The throne has come to David. He did not seize it. And then finally, with the death of Ishbetheth, that soul's son in chapter 4, this huge multitude now journeyed to David at Hebron and joined with Judah in recognizing God's promises, God's promises that secure the kingdom. Now, they provide several reasons, the people, they provide several reasons for the coronation of David, why David is not only their choice, but also the choice of God. First of all, they're united to David by kinship. Verse one, we read, we are your bone, flesh, and blood. So that fulfilled the law in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that mandated the appointment of a fellow Israelite. And then secondly, leadership. In in, in retrospect, they were forced to admit that even during the reign of Saul, David was the most successful military leader in the land. How could they forget David's victory over Goliath? In 1 Samuel chapter 17. But their third and most important reason for choosing David was promise. Again, in fulfillment of the law, David was the one whom the Lord had chosen to reign over his people. Verse 2b, it says, And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. The pronoun you there referring to David is emphatic in the Hebrew text. And of note also in verses one to five, we see both the divine and the human dimensions of the process and transactions involved. Now, God has made David leader over Israel, that's in verse two, a term carrying both religious uh, and carrying a religious implication, but equally the tribes of Israel, verse one, and all the elders of Israel in verse three, they have made David king, emphasizing more the, the human political dimensions of the office. From the human point of view, David was made king by anointing and by the establishment of a covenant between David and the elders of the various tribes and presumably describing their mutual responsibilities in all likelihood taken in the name of the Lord by both parties. And verse four to five, we're given a brief summary of David's reign over Israel and the tribes involved. But as well as God's promise being fulfilled in the coronation of David, there's another divine promise here fulfilled in the conquest of Jerusalem. And we read in the book of Judges that both Benjamin and Judah had attacked the city, but it was never fully captured, and it had remained a small but very heavily fortified city. And so geographically, as far as the Israelites were concerned, the site, it was surrounded on three sites by deep valleys, including the Kidron Valley. So it was nearly an impregnable national capital. And then politically, well, Zion was also ideally situated because it was on the border between Judah, on the one hand, that was David's tribe, and Benjamin, on the other hand, that was Saul's tribe and belonging to neither. But what was the promise that secured the capture of Jerusalem from the Jebusites? Well, we have to go back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, where we read on that day, The Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Kenites, Gerkishites, and note that last one, the Jebusites. Now when the Lord promised the land to Abraham's descendants, he meant lands which other occupied at that time. But note the Jebusites, there they are here, in this list among the last of these various people groups. What an amazing link between God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 18 regarding the Jebusites and to David here regarding his kingdom in 2 Samuel chapter five. Now then after telling us why Jerusalem was captured, the writer tells us how. Now the the Jebusites in verse 6, they boasted that it was so impregnable that even the blind and the lame could defend it against attack. But as we read, David turned the Jebusites taunts back on themselves as he captures the city. Jerusalem becomes his capital, the city of David. And the meaning of some of these verses, it has to be said, is difficult. Uh, including how in fact Jerusalem was captured, we're not quite clear about that. Most interpreters have concluded that David's men possibly made a water tunnel that connected the fortress of Zion with the Gihon spring outside the city walls in order either to access the city itself or to cut off its water supply. But even what we really need to know is that even though this accomplishment of David is described in only a few verses, its importance cannot be overstated because from this point onwards, numerous texts of the Old Testament of Zion not only speak of David's royal city and the capital of the nation of Israel, but also as the place where Israel's divine king, Yahweh reigns over the whole earth. According to biblical teaching Zion, or perhaps we know it more often today as Jerusalem, the dwelling place of Yahweh, Israel's divine king will continue to be a focal point in history until the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. God's promises that secure the kingdom. But also in verses 11 and 12, we see God's vision, God's vision that directs the kingdom. Now this came through human recognition. David is honored by other kings. We read in verse 11, Now Hiram, king of Tyre sent envoys or messengers to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons and they built a palace for David. Now so that's public public applause but that's not the emphasis. Verse 12 underscores the greater importance of the divine insight given to David. Then David knew we read that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and even more importantly still is the rationale for the Lord's stabilizing work for the sake of his people Israel. You see the Lord didn't anchor David's throne so as he could act as a king, but rather so as he could function as a servant. David is over Israel for Israel. And of course, you know, that whole mentality is so counterintuitive to sinful human nature today, whether it's royal or common. We all crave homage, don't we, rather than service. But Christ insists that all his disciples must hold this vision, especially those who are in leadership capacities. As we read in Mark's gospel, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And note that verse 12 builds on the statement of the Lord's involvement with David in verse 10, where it says, And he, that is David, became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. It was God's doing, not David's. The kingdom must be the Lord's gift, and David. Is given the insight to see it. God's vision that directs the kingdom. But also, we can see here God's blessing. God's blessing that prospers the kingdom. This is verses 13 to 16. Now, the first list of names of David's sons born in Hebron, that's given in 2 Samuel 3, verses 2 to 5. While here in this chapter we read tonight, that's verses 13 to 16, we have a further list To those sons born to David in Jerusalem and the birth of uh, of these many sons on the one hand can be viewed positively as a blessing from God and that's echoed very much in the psalms such as psalm 127 and also as evidence of the increasing strength of David's royal household but it can also be viewed negatively you know as the reader cannot help but be disturbed by David's apparent violation of the Deuteronomy law, that's Deuteronomy chapter 17, that prohibited, prohibited the king from taking many wives for himself. Indeed, in subsequent chapters in 2 Samuel here, they describe the heartache that came to David in the aftermath of his marriage to Bathsheba in connection with the behavior of his sons, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. So what in the whole, David's kingship was admirable and his fidelity to the Lord consistent. His faithfulness was was less than complete as his practices were influenced by human culture rather than obedience to God's law. And dare I say that such observation should curb our tendency towards Christian hero worship. Our passion for becoming so enamored with certain kingdom servants that we, we fail to remember that we too and we are all sinful people who inevitably will disappoint in some way or another. Even David here compromises and mars the kingdom over which he rules. Ultimately, the kingdom is only safe in the hands of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who always, as we're reminded in John's gospel, who always does what pleases the Father. God's blessing then that prospers the kingdom. But just one more thing, it says in verses 17 to 25, we see God's power, <coughs> God's power that defends the kingdom. Now these verses, as it were, provide us with a further highlight, you might say, of, of David's accomplishments in this chapter, namely his resigning defeat of the Philistines, Israel's formidable long-term enemy. And chronologically, as we've noted, it's, it's most likely that this came very early on, Certainly in in this chapter, it came after his anointing and also most likely before his capture of Jerusalem. As soon as the Philistines learned of the unification of Israel under David's rule, what did they do? They mobilized their forces for attack. The the last thing that they wanted was for Israel to be united under one king. So what did did they do? Well, we we read in verse 17a that they heard and they went up to search for David. And they occupied the valley of Rephaim, that's southwest of Jerusalem. Now, Rapha was a giant, and Raphaim and his descendants are giants. So, this then is the valley of the giants, and David will once again be the giant killer. However, the emphasis here falls not on David, but on the Lord. In contrast, David, when he hears of the Philistine movements, he goes down in verse 17b to the stronghold, Now, that was almost certainly not Zion, but quite possibly the stronghold of Adullam, that was situated about 16 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And while these two battles have really remarkable similarities, though they have some striking differences, and we we do need to note those. We're not told of the, the time that elapsed between them. But what are the key factors in the defeat? of the Philistines. Well, I would suggest to you the first was David's reliance in God that was evident. His reliance in God that was evident. The Philistine troops, they were assembled in the Valley of Rephim. David asked the Lord as to what he should do and in response the Lord told him that yes, he should go out and fight the Philistines and that he would surely be victorious in the battle. Realizing how serious a threat David's leadership of Israel was to their own existence, they came back a second go, a second round and David once again asked the Lord as to how to respond to their challenge. This time the Lord told him that he should use a different tactic and attack the Philistine troops from the rear. The Lord promised to give David a signal to attack by causing a sign in the tops of the balsam trees at which point they were to move quickly to strike the Philistine army. Can you see though that in both these battles David sought the Lord's guidance He obeyed the Lord implicitly, and he attributed the victory to the Lord. And then we can't miss the deliverance by God that was decisive. The rescue of the first battle, verse 20, and David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim, the Lord of Breakthroughs. And the result of the second battle was a rout of the Philistine forces which were pursued by the Israelites all the way to Gezer which was northwest of Jerusalem on the border of Philistine territory. And there's no indication that we read that of a continuing Philistine threat to Israel in the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. So complete was the victory that the Philistines, they abandoned their idols when they fled And David and his men claimed them as tokens of victory. And we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 14 that David burned those idols. The Philistines, you see, they could not overcome David because the Lord was working out his purpose for the nation through him. And while the Lord's purposes go far beyond David, I think there is an important balance here because the Lord's sovereignty is joined with human faith. So, just as we finish, you know what are the take home messages from these verses? What can we take home this week and indeed the days that lie ahead? Well, perhaps I can first of all suggest to you that never forget that God keeps his promises, never forget that God keeps his promises. If verses one to five taught us that the lord 's promises are certain in spite of overwhelming opposition, then verses six to ten teaches his promises to, to Abraham. Are equally certain no matter how long a time that elapses before they are fulfilled. The fact that 800 years elapsed between Abraham and David it doesn't erode the reliability of the Lord's Word. God's promises are not stamped with an expiration date in small print. Through all the web of history God works to establish his Messiah for that is who David is. Messiah or Christ Means anointed one, and David is God's anointed king. He is the Christ, a picture and pointer to Jesus, yeah. the Christ. And you may ask, well, you know what what is God doing today? I don't need to remind you. We live in a fairly complicated and messed up world. We see evil and brute force; they're, they're rampant. It's often hard to see what you know what God is doing in our politics, in our culture, even in our own individual lives. But We must learn from the story of David that in the midst of all the mess, God will establish his king who brings justice and freedom to his people. That's the key to understanding history. This is the good news. The alternative is the anarchy of human selfishness and pride. And all of that should make a difference, should it not, in the way we read our Bibles and also in the way we look to the future. Yes, we have sensed that the drumbeat of the Middle East is getting louder, but we need not fear. God is working out his purposes in his good time. And let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, as the writer to the Hebrews has reminded us, because the Lord's promises are firm. So firm that time cannot dissolve them, in the case of Abraham, nor enemies derail them. In the case of David, never forget that God keeps his promises, but also never stop seeking God's guidance. These verses show us that David was totally reliant on God in every situation, including sudden reversals. You know, yesterday, there he was, the center of national acclaim, loved, fettered, exalted to the highest office in Israel. And today, the Philistines, they pour over Judah in vast numbers to kill him. It was a startling reversal and frightening reversal of David's fortunes. He had to go back to the cave of Adullam for protection. Have you had a few sudden reversals in your life recently? You know, one day you're enjoying life at full tilt and the next you're looking at four walls. You know, One day joy, the next day sorrow and chaos. Don't be surprised. If God makes your circumstances in life tremble now and again, if only to remind you that He is Lord, then and only then can you be a help to someone who is going through a similar situation? It was, after all, sudden reversal days that brought out the greatest of David's Psalms. A key to the defeat of the Philistines was his constant reliance on God. He asked God the first time, and God described his tactics. And assured him of victory now the second time well he might have realized that yes he'd been to God the first time he knew what God would say there wasn't really much point in going back to God again how wrong he would have been but note also that when David inquired of the Lord what he should do he did so fully prepared to obey him and such constant reliance and unswerving obedience opens up your way like nothing else But just lastly, never underestimate God's power and protection. There are many titles uh, uh, of the Lord in Scripture, but this one in verse 20, Baal Perazim, the master of breakthroughs, though tucked away in this corner of David's life, is is probably one of the most graphic. It's the image of of a flash flood bursting. Everything is carried away in its destruction. King David knew very well the secret, though, of his strength, where his strength lay. His master was the master of breakthroughs. What about you? Perhaps tonight you might be hemmed in. You're frightened. Little blessing in your life. You're know, a bit discouraged. Even ready to quit. Lift your eyes to the master of breakthroughs. But there's more. For note also the assurance of God's protection. In verse 24, it says, the Lord will go out. Before you, that verb "go out" or "go forth" frequently refers to leading or going out into battle. You know, how often have we discovered in life that the Lord has gone out before us? The Lord always goes out before us when He calls us to, to do something. You'll be amazed at how the way has been prepared for you. Wasn't that King David's secret? You know, one of the great things that all he did for, uh, all the great things that he did in life. He was prepared for Goliath long before he met him. In our prayers of intercession that I mentioned at the start of the service, um, David Moore, who recently retired from North Presbyterian Church to take up an itinerant post in in West Belfast where following the closure of Albert Street, there really has been very little, if any, church presence in in that area for many years. This is an area of about 90,000 inhabitants. It stretches from the bypass through to Divas uh, Mountain, and he spoke in our church last Sunday morning, and he, he told us that there, there he was a year or so ago, taking this first step of faith, but where, where was he to start? And on the first morning, he said that he attended a local community center where a man called Bartley, an historian, very prominent in Sinn Féin was one of the speakers. Now this gentleman, Bartley, had written a book on the cemetery which is just opposite the exit of Musgrave Park Hospital. If you're going out of Musgrave Park Hospital, the cemetery is there just almost directly facing you. And this man, Bartley, had written very warm, if not even quite glowingly, of a number of Presbyterians who had been buried in that churchyard. And on the morning, during his talk in the community center, he alluded to this. And he came out with this amazing statement. He said, how can we get more Presbyterians into this area? How can we get more Presbyterians into this area? David Moore said he couldn't believe his ears. And of course, he went over to talk with him after the event. You see, the Lord had broken through. The Lord had gone before him. But the supreme demonstration of God breaking through us, what he has done to redeem his people in the person of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is no Christ who, who merely cries out from heaven to repent or even gives us a tract, as it were, at arm's length in the street. No, that's not he. This is the one who came to be one of us, to be with us, the sinless son of God who became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And at Calvary, God, as it were, he broke through against his son to deliver us from the penalty of sin and to secure for us a place in God's eternal kingdom. And this is a gift which we can never deserve. But God, who is rich in mercy, has not listed our crimes against us. Rather, he has accepted us in the righteousness of his son and his atoning death. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we read that there were at least 300,000 armed men, apart from hundreds of thousands of civilians, who came to Hebron to make David king. And we read, for three days they feasted. Israel had at last chosen God's king, and there was joy in Israel. And so it is, when you give God's king the rightful place in your life, the inevitable result is joy. By accepting Christ as your Savior, you can know the joy of being accepted by Christ, of being forgiven by God, and the thrill of being commissioned to his service. And my hope and prayer is that all of us here tonight have experienced the joy of sins forgiven. And we're looking to that day when with countless others round the throne of the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will be crying, worthy is the Lamb that were slain and what a day of rejoicing that will